after Proverbs. Ecclesiastes just basically means the, the preacher. Okay? So, uh, I'll just let you know that right now. Uh, I titled today's message, The Absurdity of Life Without God. The Absurdity of Life Without God. This is, this is one of those messages, and by the way, this theme wasn't invented by some non-Christian philosopher. This theme was put in God's Word as divinely inspired, that life is meaningless without God. Through King Solomon, God breathed His Word. God inspired him, guided him to record his word without error in the book of Ecclesiastes. And it speaks on how absurd life is without God. Now, a brief introduction. We live in what the Christian, late Christian thinker Francis Schaeffer refers to as a post-Christian era. What that means is that Christianity is no longer considered cool. Christianity is no longer the cool thing to do. It's not cool to be a Christian anymore. Now other things are cool, like psychology and the love of self, emotion, hyper-emotionalism, New Age thinking. That's the cool thing to do. It's not cool to stand on the Word of God. And so we live in a generation that knows not God. We live in a day and age where the Word of God is, is degraded, is looked down upon. And rather than people respecting the Word of God and obeying it, people are turning their backs on God. Today, belief in God is often rejected as an outdated fairy tale, the, the belief in God of the Bible. Carl Sagan has gone on record as saying that uh, you cannot be an intelligent man and believe and, and an intelligent man in the 20th century and still believe that God exists. Now, Carl Sagan also refuses to debate my professors, my former professors from Liberty University, um, and you know, refuses to debate any Christian thinker for that matter, because then we could find out for sure who is the intelligent person. But today, belief in God is rejected as an outdated fairy tale. Friedrich Nietzsche, the German atheist who died in the year 1900, he agreed with his, his atheist colleagues. He agreed that there was no, that no God exists, but he told them, he said, you guys aren't living consistent with your beliefs. If God doesn't exist, then there's no such thing as right and wrong. Man can do whatever he pleases. And so Friedrich Nietzsche said the 20th century would be the bloodiest century in the history of mankind because it would be an atheistic culture living out the consequences, the logical consequences of, of a view that believes in a world without God. He was right. Look how horrible. He was wrong about saying God is dead. And so Norman Geiser said in one of his debates, Nietzsche said, God is dead. The fact of the matter is, though, Nietzsche is dead. And God is alive and well. It's been 2,000 years since our Savior went to the cross. And there's still people all over the world, millions of people, bend the knee at the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and worship Him. But Nietzsche is dead, 
and his body rotted in the grave. But, uh, but Nietzsche was right that once we started living out that atheism, once we really started believing we were just a bunch of evolved apes, we would start living like animals. And the 20th century has proven to be the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. But contemporary man, because he rejected God, he got something that came along with that atheistic view that he didn't like. Because he rejected God, contemporary man has failed to find meaning in life. Reason being is if there is no God that designed us and created us for a purpose, then we're all products of chance. You're an accident. Just a chance arrangement of molecules that were arbitrarily thrown together. A total accident. So there's no meaning to life. There's no significance because all we are in their thinking is molecules in motion. And what modern man has failed to find is satisfaction apart from God. I mean, I mean the Rolling Stones back in the 60s recognized this, I don't get no satisfaction. And they, they just, you know, making a little song, but that's the fact of the matter. If you do not bend the knee to Jesus Christ, if you are really honest and look into the depths of your soul, you will have to admit that there is no satisfaction, there is no meaning, there is no significance apart from God. And so today we hear about words like anxiety, stress, despair, boredom. Do you know that there is no ancient word for boredom? We live in a day and age where you could turn on, you could turn on a TV set. I mean, you don't have to work 60 hours a week anymore. A lot of us still do. But it's America. You can work a 40-hour work week and then go home and turn on a TV set and spend their time doing this and doing that. Boredom is a modern word. It's because we've thrown out the God of the Bible and all of a sudden life becomes boring. You could, you could say, well, you know, I, I love to play football. Well, let me tell you, if you don't worship, if you don't bow before the throne of our great God and Savior and you just keep playing football day in and day out, eventually... It becomes boring. I mean, the greatest basketball player who ever lived reached a point in life where he got so bored where he played baseball in the minor leagues for a few years. Mike Tyson thought being the heavyweight champ of the world, that was his god. That was the greatest thing. Then he got there. He was the king of the hill. He demolished everybody else. And all of a sudden, it wasn't all it was perked up to be. The guy ended up in prison. Yeah, Alexander the Great thought, man, wouldn't life be neat? I could really find meaning in life if I could conquer the whole world. He was 16 years old, student of this dude named Aristotle. And he said, if I could just take over the world, I'd be happy. So he takes over the entire known world at that time, at eight by the time he's 25 years old. I mean, I, you know, that would look pretty good on a resume. Age 16, decided to take over the world. Age 25, completed the job. I mean, it's like... Geez, well, he'd be overqualified, though, I would think, for most jobs. But, but what do you do when your whole life is centered around taking over the world and all of a sudden you've done it? There's no, nothing else to do. So by the time he was 33, it took him nine years to take over the world. It took him only eight years to kill himself. By the time he was 33, he had died from drunken orgies, partied himself to death. You know, and... It, 
Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, if there's no life after death, if there's no God to judge us, to either punish us or reward us, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Well, Alexander the Great reached that point. He took over the world and found out he still didn't have true joy. It eluded him, and so he partied himself to death. Life is meaningless without... The sad thing is not that life is meaningless without God. That's really something to rejoice about because that should lead us to God. The sad thing is, is a lot of people won't admit that. And I knew a fool back in Jersey. Thought he was the toughest guy on the block. Thought he could take on anybody. Thought he was Mr. Joe Cool. And he'd brag about himself before others and he got a nickname and he got a big name and he thought he was Mr. Hotshot. But the fact of the matter is when that guy was all alone at night and he would turn off the light the light would go down in his room and he'd be all alone. He had to live with himself. And he wasn't this hot shot that he played himself up to be. And he would cry himself to sleep and sometimes the tears on his pillow would wake him up. And he had to admit to himself and look in the mirror and admit he was a fool. And eventually that fool came to Christ and found the true meaning to life. Um, you know, I... That fool even wrote a song once that uh, it, it said, Things are going bad, you know I can't explain, sometimes I think I will go insane. Uh, give me a reason, a reason to live, give me a reason, a reason to give. And now that fool's found Christ. And uh, Jesus is our reason to live. Jesus is our reason to give. But modern man, you look around and you hear about people suffering from anxiety, despair, boredom, meaningless, having no reason to live. That's the way, you know, if everybody's honest and if they would just admit the fact and stop playing with their little toys to divert their attention from their inevitable death, every non-believer should be on line C, anxiety, despair, boredom, meaningless, and no reason to live. Now, when believers act this way, something's wrong. If you really trust in Jesus, you've got access to his joy. You should have the joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength, the scriptures say. And so uh, we have no reason. If you don't experience the joy of the Lord, it's not somebody else's fault. It's you have chosen not to allow the Holy Spirit to bear the fruit of joy and peace in your life. But the world should be characterized by this because life is absurd without God. Now Solomon, we're going to take a look at Solomon's view of life without God. Solomon wrote, he was King David's son. He succeeded him on the throne of Israel, uh, ruled over the nation of Israel, and he wrote about 935 B.C. Now this is interesting too because uh, philosophy professors will tell us that uh, philosophy did not start until 585 B.C. Which is which really is, is, is baloney, okay? You know when you know when human philosophy started, when man started to try to figure things out on his own apart from God. It started when when Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden fruit, the tree of forbidden knowledge. That's when it began. Um, but Solomon, 
Let's get a little background first on his wisdom. Take a look at Second Chronicles chapter 1. Second Chronicles chapter 1. Second Chronicles chapter 1. Solomon's going to be the king of Israel and replace David at David's, his father David's death. Look at verse 7. In that night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. Man, can you imagine if God did that and appeared to Phil Fernandez and said, Just ask me, whatever you want, I'm going to give it to you. Man, I could imagine the, the, the dumb list I would come up with. But, but, but take a look at Solomon, what Solomon asked for. Verses 10 to 12. Give me now wisdom and knowledge that I may go out and come in before this people, for who can rule this great people of thine? And he realized, you know, I'm not just a king over people. I'm the king over the chosen people of God. I need wisdom. I need wisdom from you to fulfill the task that you've given me. Verse 11. And God said to Solomon... Because you had this in mind and did not ask for riches, wealth, or honor, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for long life, but you have asked for yourself wisdom and knowledge that you may rule my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you. And I will give you riches and wealth and honor, such as none of the kings who were before you have possessed, uh, nor those who will come after you. And so God answered that prayer. We don't have time to turn there, but in James chapter 1, verse 5, uh, God still answers that prayer today. James tells us that if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Any prayer that you ask that's in accordance with God's will, he will give to you. Sometimes we ask for things for our own pleasures and not in accordance with God's will. But if you ask... For a good gift from the Father, He will give it to you. And wisdom is a good gift. Uh, take a look at uh, 1 Kings chapter 4. 1 Kings chapter 4. Just want to show you that God answered His prayer, gave Him this wisdom. And, uh, you know... The idea that philosophy, which is supposed to be the love of wisdom, but seems to be the exact opposite of it today, um, it's supposed to have started in 585 B.C. And the, the reason why people say that is because they're evolutionists and they assume that Solomon was closer to the apes than the Greek philosophers. Uh, Solomon was closer to God than the Greek philosophers. I mean... God created Adam and Eve perfect, and we started going downhill from that point. Um, but this idea that uh, a thousand years before Christ, men were a bunch of uh, Neanderthals is, is ludicrous. Uh, the Word of God teaches differently. But take a look at 1 Kings chapter 4, verses 29 to 34. Now God gave Solomon wisdom and very great discernment and breadth of mind like the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the sons of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. 
for he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezrahite, Haman, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal, and his fame was known in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees. You see, this guy was a songwriter, he was a poet, he was a philosopher in the, in the sense of divine wisdom. Uh, he was also a scientist. He spoke of trees, from the cedar that is in Lebanon, even to the hyssop that grows on the wall. He also spoke of animals and birds and creeping things and fish. And men came from all peoples to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. I mean, that makes Socrates sound like a third-grade student who's having a problem with math. King Solomon was a wise man, but it was God's wisdom, not the mere reasoning of men. And so what does Solomon say about life without God? We're going to take a look at his work entitled Ecclesiastes, which is right after Proverbs. Now, there's... Uh, a word and a phrase that are very key to this book. The word is vanity. We need to look at that and then the phrase under the sun. If you're going to understand the book of Ecclesiastes, you're going to have to understand what these words mean. Vanity, the Hebrew word for vanity is hebel. Hebel. It's used 71 times in the Old Testament in the noun form, but 36, more than half. Uh, of these 71 times, 36 times is used in the book of Ecclesiastes alone, which is a very small book, only 12 chapters. So this theme, this vanity is mentioned so many times, it is the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Literally, vanity means a vapor or a breath. It means air, a breath of air, okay? But it's used, the Hebrew language is very poetic, and they used words in a figurative sense to paint a picture, okay, rather than the, the Greek language, which was very analytic and, and hair-splitting. Uh, the, the Hebrew language painted a picture. And so it would, it would be used of something that is fleeting, something that is temporary, something that is transitory, here today, gone tomorrow, okay? It, it was also used of, of emptiness, of nothingness. I mean, it's so brief... It's like, you know, it, it doesn't even matter. It's all, almost like being non-existent, if you will. Uh, and so it's also used of futility, worthlessness, vanity, uselessness. Okay? This is the idea that Solomon is bringing out. He's talking about something and it always ends up being futile, a waste of time, wearisome, temporary. It doesn't last forever, so don't even bother with it. Okay. Um, the other phrase is under the sun. Solomon does not say everything is, va is vain, period. Everything is vanity, period. Everything is futile, period. He says, when you understand him in his context, over and over again, he uses the phrase under the sun. He says, everything is vanity under the sun. Again, the Hebrew language is a poetic language. Now, under the sun... If you were talking in more of a literal sense, it would mean the Earth's atmosphere, okay? So, 
Solomon talking, painting a picture with words, being poetic. What does he mean by the earth's atmosphere? Everything under the sun that is futile. What he's talking about is the realm of the five senses and human reason. He's talking about the world that we live in and knowledge, human knowledge, human wisdom, but he is limiting that wisdom and that knowledge to the earth's uh, atmosphere. So he's basically talking about the human experience, human life, the human experience without divine revelation. He's talking about the human experience without a word from God. He's talking about human experience if God had not spoken, if God was silent. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book, He is there and He is not silent. I praise God that He is there, that He exists, but can you imagine if He existed and He was silent so we never heard a word from Him? For practical purposes, it would be just as good as Him not being there. We wouldn't even wouldn't know what, he, what truth was. And so, under the sun is a phrase for the human experience or human life without divine revelation. And what Solomon is saying throughout this book is everything is futile, a waste of time, it's temporary, here today, gone tomorrow, so it's worthless without a word from God. So Solomon talks about the absurdity of life without God. Look at the first three verses of this book, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. The words of the preacher, and that's where we get the word Ecclesiastes from. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Oh, it was only one son of David who was king in Jerusalem, that was Solomon. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all his work which he does under the sun. And he, has, he said, brings up under the sun and vanity over and over again. So he's speaking about the absurdity of life without God. Now, now what he does is, if Solomon had it all, he got the wealth. He had, you know, he ended up at the, towards the end of his life, he had as many as, uh, was, I think it was, it was either 300 wives and 700 concubines or... 700 wives and 300 concubines, but they added up to a thousand. A concubine is um, uh, a sexual partner, uh, a member of the opposite sex who is a sexual partner who does not have the rights that a wife has. Okay? So Solomon ended up marrying, a, uh, basically having a, what we would call a, a thousand different uh, wives or at least ladies that he had relations with. Solomon had money. He had the, the building projects. He had the big name. He had power. And so from experience, Solomon goes down a whole list of possible candidates under the sun... Let's, what he's saying is, let's leave God out of the equation and try to find meaning to life. Try to make human life meaningful experience. And what he says is, when you take God out of the equation and all you look at is that which is under the sun, all these candidates fail to give meaning to life. He talks about human wisdom. Solomon had plenty of that. Ecclesiastes 1, verses 17 and 18. 
and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly, I realized that this also is striving after the wind. He's like a runner running against the wind, never gets to where he wants to go because the wind keeps pushing him back. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief. Increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. Let me tell you, if you start out, if your first premise, if your first premise is the first premise of the thought of Friedrich Nietzsche, the German philosopher, if your first premise is God is dead, there is no God, and if you are logical in your thought, I think Nietzsche was the most logical atheist that ever lived. If your first premise is there is no God, and then you try to draw logical conclusions from that, I think you'll end up the same way that Nietzsche was in the end of his life. He died insane. Okay? Um, and what Solomon's saying, if you increase in wisdom, but you're not looking beyond the sun for the answer, you're not looking beyond the earth's atmosphere for the answer, you're not looking to God for the solution to your problems, if you turn to human wisdom, all it's going to make you do is wallow in despair because you're going to realize how miserable you are without God. So Solomon said, well, why not try pleasure? Look at Ecclesiastes 2, verses 1 and 2. I said to myself, come now, I will test you with pleasure. So enjoy yourself, and behold, it too was futility. I said of laughter, it is madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? So temporary pleasures could not bring meaning to life. What about wine? Maybe just drown your problems with the bottle. Verse 3 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under, the, under heaven the few years of their lives. Now, he's listing a whole bunch of things. He doesn't respond how futile that is till he sums it up later on in the chapter. But let me just go a little bit ahead of myself. He does say that that is futile. Uh, then he talks about, well, maybe building projects. Verse 4, I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. I mean, houses doesn't do justice to this. I mean, this guy did not just build houses. I mean, he built, like, the temple in Jerusalem. God didn't let David do it. Solomon built, built it. It was probably the most beautiful building. Uh, on the planet Earth at that time. Uh, he built a huge palace for himself. Gold was everywhere. And so these building projects didn't bring meaning to life. Verse 8, he tried wealth, music, and sex. Sounds like, uh, sounds like a, a combination of uh, uh, many of the business tycoons of the 80s uh, with the... Uh, rock and rollers of the 60s wealth music and sex verse 8 also I collected for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men many concubines and again concubines are sexual partners of the opposite sex who do not have the rights that a wife would have and that was very common in ancient times, and God's Word never condones it. Jesus said in Matthew 19, the two, God's created purpose, He created Adam and Eve, 
and he said, the two shall become one flesh. Not the 1,001, Mr. King Solomon. Okay? Uh, you know, Solomon, God gave him wisdom, but sometimes Solomon had to learn the hard way. And, you know, I'm glad that uh, most Christians will learn that a, a, a drug abuse is evil without experimenting with, with drugs. Solomon learned the hard way in a lot of areas and experimented with wealth, music, sex, wine, pleasure. Uh, popularity, maybe popularity could solve the problem. Verse 9 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. So he was saying, you know, I had the big name. I was Mr. Popular. I was big man on campus. Well, he sums up all these different lists of candidates in verse 17. He says, So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me, because everything is futility and striving after wind. If you're the type of person who underlines in your Bible, underline that verse. And at the end of it, put write down modern man generation X by the way I am not anti-generation X I love generation X but when I hear the garbage that they've been taught in the public schools they've been taught there's no meaning they've been taught there's no God they've been taught we're a bunch of evolved apes they've been taught there's no such thing as right and wrong and then they stumble around and hopefully they get one thrill after another because God forbid two days go by without a thrill because then they get to wallow in their despair of the absurdity of life without God but that's the modern man that's the way the modern man thinks today he's actually if he's consistent with his views he begins to hate life and he begins to see that life is striving after the wind and so Solomon's conclusion is that everything under the sun is futility but then he says something interesting. Chapter 3, verse 11. He's talking about God, and he gives what I call the clue. The clue that the solution lies beyond the sun. Yes, life is futile under the sun. But there's a little clue in our experience that we call life under the sun there's a little clue that there is an answer there is a solution that lies beyond the sun Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 3 verse 11 he has made everything God has made everything appropriate in its time he has also set eternity in their heart yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end we can't figure God out totally God is omniscient. He's all-knowing. He's infinite in knowledge and wisdom. We're finite. We're limited in knowledge and wisdom. We can't figure Him out totally. At the same time, we got this thing called eternity in our hearts. You see, men debate about eternal things. Is there life after death? Does God exist? Dogs don't. A dog doesn't sit around and mope because he's contemplating his own death. Man does. God has put, God has created us as eternal beings. And He has created us in such a way that we will never be 
we will never experience true joy with temporary pleasures. There's always a desire, even among non-Christians, not just Christians, but non-Christians alike, all mankind, there's a desire to transcend and get beyond this earthly experience, to go beyond the, uh, the realm that Solomon calls under the sun. And so that clue that the solution lies beyond, beyond the sun is man's innate longing for the eternal things of God. Um, not everybody describes it this way, but basically it's man's thirst for God. Man's thirst for something more than the pleasures and the uh, successes of this life. And Solomon concludes this book, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. He is basically looking at things from the human perspective apart from God. And when everything is said and done, this is his final conclusion here. The conclusion when all has been heard is fear God and keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. What he's saying is... The answer lies be beyond the sun. Life is absurd without God. So when everything is said and done, you need to, number one, fear God. And then find out what he has said and then obey what he has said. Now, take a look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. God also inspired Solomon to write uh, the majority of Proverbs. Proverbs 1 verse 7 tells us the beginning of knowledge. Now what's being spoken about about knowledge here is the knowledge that really matters. Knowledge of eternal things. Okay? Uh, we were coming back on a ferry last night and uh, a lady overheard me talking about baseball. And she said, oh, you're very knowledgeable in areas of baseball. Well, that isn't the kind of knowledge that's being spoken about here. Um, yeah, just, just to... Baseball is a good example of how transitory things are. The guys that I used to watch that were rookies and were my favorite ball players, now I watch these guys and they got, they got big guts and they got gray hair and uh, they look like old, old men, elderly men, and they're the first base coaches and the managers of the teams. And I thought, man, I watched that guy. He was like yesterday. He was a rookie. And the guy played for 20 years and then he retired, and now he's managing young ball players. I mean, baseball don't last forever. But God's put eternity in our hearts. Uh, so, as far as spiritual knowledge, knowledge from on high, spiritual wisdom, here's where it begins, right where Solomon ends, his book of Ecclesiastes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Uh, there's another psalm later, another proverb later on, which says the beginning of the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of wisdom. Once you fear God and say, hey, there is a God who sits enthroned. And if I don't find out how to be, how to be saved by him, 
I'm going to burn in hell forever. Right there, you have just begun to learn the things that really matter. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, we don't have time to turn here. Paul talks about fools who are always learning but never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's the atheist. He's always learning more and more uh, about things that don't really have eternal value. But when it comes to the eternal wisdom of God, he rejects that. So Solomon says, fear God. In other words, recognize there is a God who sits enthroned and turn to Him. Uh, recognize He is God, you are not. This is His universe, it doesn't belong to you. And you better get with His program real quick. Basically, those who fear God, eventually that leads them into a personal relationship with God by accepting the means of salvation He has provided, which is by trusting in Jesus Christ for salvation. And so once a person he is saved, then he uh, obeys God's commands through the power that God has given him through the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now I want to mention this. Solomon's wisdom here, throughout the history of the church, Christian thinkers, many Christian thinkers have agreed with them. Uh, obviously, you know, Solomon, it was, it's God's word, so they better agree with them. Uh, St. Augustine, who lived from 354 A.D. to 430 A.D., he wrote this in his Confessions, which is his testimony, his life. He wrote, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until, until they rest in thee. No matter, no matter what you're trying to do, if you haven't turned things over to the Lord, deep down inside, your soul is going to be in turmoil. And there's only one place to find rest. And that's to turn to the carpenter from Nazareth who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He gives rest to our uh, souls which are in turmoil until we find them. Blaise Pascal, I summed up uh, his thought on this particular topic. He wrote a work called Ponces, which translates, it means thoughts. I summed it up in four words. Death, despair, diversions, and deliverance. Okay? Uh, death. L listen to what Pascal says. You know, Pascal has also said this. It wasn't in the Ponces, I don't believe, though. That there's a heart, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of all men that only God can fill. And we try to fill it with, with booze and with sexual immorality and uh, with building projects, with wealth, whatever, but it cannot fill that vacuum. Only God can fill that vacuum. Uh, but Pascal said this, here's... He said, uh, and by the way, he lived from 1623 to 1662 A.D. He's one of the greatest scientists who ever lived. Um, Basically, he invented the calculator and the computer. Um, but Pascal, he's famous also for the laws of probability. But he described the human situation apart from God as this. Imagine a number of men in chains, all under the sentence of death, some of whom are each day butchered in the sight of others. Those remaining see their own condition in, in that of their fellows, and looking at each other with grief and despair, await their turn. This is an image of the human condition. 
you find out real early in life that your life is going to end in a brutal thing called death. And it might be painful, then again, it might be so fast that maybe you don't feel pain. But the fact of the matter is, you are going to die. So, Pascal talks about death and despair that comes from it. But then because of that despair that comes from death, what does man do? Because of the despair that comes from death, he enters into diversions. He looks for diversions. Pascal stated this, being unable to cure death, wretchedness and ignorance men have decided in order to be happy not to think about such things you know until age 21 when I came to Christ my whole life can be summed up under diversions only one time can I remember really contemplating my own my own death and that was when I was a senior in high school and I wrote a, a poem and I titled it no flowers people gave and uh, I found a tombstone once, I was going out to eat at a diner late at night, and I pulled in, and my car hit something hard, so I backed up, I got out to see what I hit, and what it was, the, the restaurant parking lot bordered on a uh, graveyard that was filled with uh, tombstones that date back to the Revolutionary War. And so I moved all the bushes out of the way, and I saw I hit a tombstone. And the tombstone, the top half of it, you couldn't even read the words because it had been chipped away. But the, the bottom part ended with a poem from the husband of the lady that died saying that she would never be forgotten. I thought, what do you mean she'd never be? She was, she was forgotten. You know? She was forgotten. I mean, if she wasn't forgotten, why is the bush around in her grave? So I wrote a little poem. I wrote, uh, in a cemetery... I saw a large bush that covered up a grave. The hidden stones stood all alone with no flowers people gave. And then I talked about my own situation, being in college, walking down a hall, nobody, nobody's head's turning, you know, I'm just a regular guy and all. And then I put down a paragraph, for ten years from this date, all I will ever be is a picture and a yearbook for ex-classmates to see. And then I went back to that grave and I said, and after I die, will a bush around my grave, will a hidden stone stand all alone with no flowers people gave? Only once in my life. I was up till three in the morning thinking, man, I can't write poems. How am I going to write a poem, you know, and stuff? And I was a non-believer, and I got real depressed that I had a poem due for school the next morning. And I got so depressed, I started thinking about death, and then I remembered seeing that tombstone, and it came to me and I jotted it down. But other than that, my whole life was not focused on, hey, you're going to die someday, Fernandez. What are you going to do about it? Someday you're going to attend the funeral and it's going to be your own. Instead of thinking about that, I just set up diversions. One of my diversions was Mr. Tough Guy. I can play a tough guy. Invincible. Hey, nobody's invincible. The day's going to come. Mike Tyson is going to be an old man. He might even be like Muhammad Ali. To where he might have to take so many punches, it might slow down his speech. But the day is going to come when every heavyweight champ is going to get older and sicker and eventually die. But my life was just focused on diversions. Anything to divert my attention from my inevitable death. Pascal also said this, uh, Men have a secret instinct driving them to seek external diversion and occupation. He stated, 
It makes a man happy to be diverted from contemplating his private miseries by making him care about nothing else but dancing well. You know, it's almost, we humans are so foolish. Life is so futile apart from God. It's like two guys get together and say, Hey, you know you're going to die, Fernandez? Yeah, I know I'm going to die. You know you're going to die? Yeah, I know I'm going to die. What are we going to do about it? Hey, let's go dancing. Let's go dancing. And we just forget about it. We just ignore our problems. As long as we can dance and watch baseball games and football games and buy a new toy, maybe a new car or whatever, and anything to divert our attention from the fact that someday some preacher is going to preach our own funeral. Diversions. But then Pascal talked about deliverance. He said, in this life there is no true and solid satisfaction. All our pleasures are mere vanity. He said, in this life no solid satisfaction. And so he concluded that the only good thing in this life is the hope of another life. The only good thing under the sun is the hope that maybe there's more to life than just that which is under the sun. Okay? Um, Pascal even concluded that the wise man uh, will wager on God. In other words, will seek God with all his heart because Pascal believed, as Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 29:13, that if a person seeks God with all his heart, he will find him. Now, Francis Schaeffer, by the way, uh, Christian thinker, lived from 1912 to 1984. He also recognized modern man's dilemma. Now, Pascal was saying it before modern man even came on the scene. Pascal re recognized that modern man, there was what he called a line of despair. And modern man assumed that God does not exist. So if we assume that God does not exist, and we live in the realm of reason, there's nothing but despair. There's no hope, no meaning to life. No hope for life after death. And so he said that modern man has two choices. You could either be rational. If you deny God's existence, be rational. Say, well, since I believe God doesn't exist, life has no meaning, I'm going to wallow in despair. Or modern man can take an irrational leap of blind faith to try to invent meaning for his life. Those are the diversions that Pascal was talking about. Now, I want to say this. If there's somebody here who's not a Christian, they might say, yeah, well, Fernandez, what you're saying might be true, but it's only believers who said that. You know, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true, but only believers said that. Solomon said it, then Augustine, Pascal, Schaefer after him. But... Non-Christian thinkers, atheists, don't think that way, that life is absurd without God. Well, probably the two greatest atheist thinkers in our century, Jean-Paul Sartre, Jean Sartre, who lived from 1905 to 1980, and Bertrand Russell, who lived from 1872 to 1970, they both said the same thing that Solomon said. Now, they disagreed with Solomon.